Well, good morning. Well, I hope y'all are doing well. Thank you for that reading, Gary. Uh, in case you didn't know, Gary read from Ruth chapter 3. We're looking at the entire chapter this morning. And so while you open or load your Bible, uh, just two quick uh, reminders or announcements that, number one, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to take you out to, to lunch or dinner or have coffee. So fill out a Connect card, drop it in the Connect desk in the back, or come up to me after service, and I'd love to link up. And number two, if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, we have those for you. That's our gift to you. So be sure to get one at the Connect desk or in the chairs uh, uh, out in front of you. Or if you know someone that would benefit from having God's Word, as everyone should, hook them up. But other than that, that is all I have for you this morning. If y'all are cool, I'd love to just dig into our time since we're, we're looking at this entire chapter. So uh, I'm just going to just put it out there. In junior high, when a boy had feelings or crush on a girl or vice versa, I would uh, see friends fold notebook paper in this creative self-contained envelope and they would hand it off to another friend, the middleman, and this individual would deliver this note to whoever it was written to. Or, if that didn't happen, if you didn't have a middleman, uh, when this individual, the one that you had your eyes on, maybe got up to go sharpen their pencil as they did in the day, right? Uh, when they went up to go to sharpen their pencil or go to the bathroom, you'd slip it on their desk right? Or perhaps you were a little bit more interested in recon, and so you would stalk them in the hallways for a short season so that you would see not just their schedule, but so that you would also learn where their locker was, so that where you learned, once you learned where their locker was, you'd go up in there and slip that note in the locker. On the note, it read something like this, do you like me? Checkbox, yes, checkbox, no, return, right? Today, there is a new normal. That was, that was junior high and parts of high school, sadly, for me. And so today, there is a new normal. On one hand, we have text messaging, and you can tell someone is interested in someone else by the amount of text messages that they share. It's all hours of the day, it's knowing one another's schedule, and at the end, really, all that's left after all of that text messaging, all that's left is the DTR. Define the relationship. I can, I can subscribe to this one. When my wife and I were interested in one another, I think she was in Tennessee. I was in Corpus. I was working for the city of McAllen at the time. And over the course of two weeks, we exchanged over 2,500 text messages, right? That's kind of one of those, it's just DTR. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's also before the invention of the unlimited plan, okay? Okay? So you have text messaging. On the other hand, however, you have something called sub-messaging. And sub-messaging is where, this is all based on social media, where certain posts, certain pictures, certain profile pictures, or even public messages are displayed for everyone to see, but there is a subliminal message in that post or that picture or in that like. Right? And it's intended for the person that you're interested in. 
right? Everybody's done sub-messaging, right? They, they, let me just tell you about it real quick. Uh, everyone sees it. Everyone knows it. It's dumb. Stop doing it. And if you're insulted, I'm glad. Okay? The goal behind all of these ideas is to generate a clarity of interest. And you may not articulate it that way when you're a seventh grader, but it is to generate a clarity of interest instead of actually going up and talking to the person. In today's text, we're gonna see Ruth be absolutely straight up before Boaz, and while we will ride this wave of suspension that the story provides, let me give you a brief reminder. While we can and should look to Ruth and Boaz as examples of character and integrity and humility, we must also remember that we are looking through them as they point us to Jesus. Today, we will once again see Boaz pour out his kindness onto Ruth by providing for her, her family, ultimately meeting their biggest need. Yet, as we look through him, that is Boaz, as we look through him as we did last week, we are going to learn that in the providence of God, that is his quiet and invisible hand that's at work in the ordinary, the providence of God, in the providence of God, that is, redemption promises the provision of our deepest need, and that is God himself. So if you're new or you missed out last week, before diving into chapter three, let me catch you up briefly on what has happened. I'm gonna take big chunks throughout the story and it will be up to you to go back and read it. In chapter one, we see that Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. Now the time of the judges is a time where the people of God were rebelling against God, they were uh, indulging in their sin and corruption, and uh, as judges, as the book of Judges so eloquently puts it, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here we see in Ruth this little family where we see the, the providence of God shine in this little family in the midst of a season where there is absolute rebellion and chaos. And we learn about this little family. Uh, the father's name is Elimelech and the Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they're from this little town called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is experiencing the time of famine. In other words, there's no food. So Elimelech moves his family to a, a, a nearby town called Moab. And they uh, stay there for about 10 years. But within the span of those 10 years, Elimelech, the father, dies. Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women. That is, people or women who did not know the Lord. So they, they marry these two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then later on, we learn that Malon and Kilion died. So Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, they're all widows. At some point we hear or we learn that Naomi hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem. So she wants to take her daughters-in-law back to Bethlehem. But somewhere along the line has a change of mind and says, I think you should go back to Moab. I think you should go back to your family, to your God, to the way you were doing things. Orpah turns and leaves. Ruth, however, 
clings to her. And what is kind of the, the center of this entire uh, book, in all four chapters, we see Ruth's heart transformed by the grace of God. We see saving faith enacted upon Ruth as she responds to Naomi and saying, your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God wherever you go, I will go. And that's ultimately how chapter one concludes as they make their way back to Bethlehem. In chapter two, we see Ruth uh, wanting to go find work, wanting to go find food so that she could provide for her and her mother-in-law. And as she goes out into the field to glean, to get some barley because they arrived during a harvest, enter this chap named Boaz. And Boaz provides Ruth with favor and blessing and grace and provision and generosity. And he just showers her with it. And we see Ruth respond with great humility and thanksgiving. And now we come into chapter three. We come into chapter three. So before we begin, before this is where the story has a little bit of suspense. And I can't wait to dig into it. So let me pray. And then, and then we'll, we'll begin our time. Father, my simple prayer is is that may the gift of your providence be a sweet word to us this morning as we examine your word. Holy Spirit, discern our hearts this morning. Be present and at work within us. Lord, those who know Jesus, may they come to know him better today. And those who do not know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know him this morning. May our time together bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. So our text this morning is all of chapter three, and so we're going to break it up into three sections. We're going to break it up into the plan, the proposal, and then the promise of provision. One more time, the plan, the proposal, and then finally, the promise of provision. Beginning with verses one through five, we're going to look at Naomi's plan. If you remember from last week, chapter two closes after essentially Boaz hooks Ruth up with a solid job during the barley harvest. So we don't know how much time, we can guess about how much time has gone by. We'll talk about that in a minute. Chapter three opens with Naomi's plan. And she comes up with this risky plan for Ruth to approach Boaz. Let's go to verse one. She says, it says, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, before we unpack this plan, what's so significant, I think, about this prayer is that this is the prayer she was praying for Ruth and Orpah as she was encouraging them to go back to Moab. And here we have Naomi say, hey man, I want you to be taken care of. I want uh, uh, you to have a family and provision. I am looking out for you. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Naomi's revival in just a minute. But that's something that I think is so important compared to the kinds of things she was praying or saying in, in, in chapter 1. Nevertheless, she comes up with this risky plan for Ruth to approach Boaz, and it involves at least five steps. 
So we're just going to walk through them pretty plainly. I hope it's entertaining. The first one is she tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor while they are winnowing. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but that's step one, or at the very least, that's the first part of her plan. So I need you to go to the threshing floor. I need you to go uh, to the threshing floor where they are winnowing. That's number one. Number two, Ruth, I need you to shower. I need you to put on some perfume and your cloak, like if it's something from Star Wars, right? So <laughs> that's what she ultimately, now that's some, that's some solid advice, right? Take a shower. That's solid, right? Put some deodorant on, some essential oils if that's your thing, some perfume, like that's solid. Y'all should be taking notes on that. That's a good thing, right? Your cloak, right? Now, that's not just some Star Wars reference in the Bible, right? Uh, the idea of the cloak, there are, there are many um, uh, comments on what she means by her cloak, but the idea of Ruth putting on her cloak is to symbolize that she is no longer mourning, but she is actually like available. And she wants to make herself known to Boaz. So that's step two. Shower, put some perfume on, get your Star Wars cloak. Number three, she tells her to go in. Actually, let's just read it. Number three, she says, uh, wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But here it is. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. So she tells her, when you go to the threshing floor, I need you to be stealth-like. I need you to be quiet. And we're going to examine why that's important in just a minute. But she's telling her, I need you to be stealth-like. I need you to be quiet. I need you to make sure that you're not seen by others, not just Boaz, but by others. And when you go, go after dinner, right? After he's had some, uh, I don't know, steak. Maybe he's having some wine. Like, go after He's been satisfied. Number four, she tells her, keep a lookout for where he lies down. Now that's, that's solid, right? Because uh, it would be very awkward if Ruth goes to someone who is not Boaz, right? And so she's just trying to be specific. She's just trying to cover, cover all her bases, right? Make sure you notice where he lies down. And then number five, when you get there, uncover his feet and lie down at his feet. Pretty specific. There's a lot of good stuff here, but it's a very, very risky plan. I want to focus on her telling her to go to the threshing floor while they were winnowing. So in order to understand what that is and why it's dangerous, that's why we're going to look at it. Winnowing was when the farmers would separate the, the grain from the chaff. And ultimately, remember, this is happening during the barley harvest. So they've harvested a lot of grains, so and now they've got to separate it. And so what they would do is they would take it to uh, a hilltop, because at the hilltop, there is a lot more of an evening breeze. And so as they were separating the grain from the chaff, the breeze would actually help separate the, 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 the grain from the chaff. Now, all that being said, that's what it meant to winnow. Why was it so dangerous, though? <clears throat> well, when they would be on the threshing floor doing this work, there was a couple of things that it, it served. Number one, it was a communal place. This is where all the farmers would come together and hang out and be with one another and swap stories and work together and be around one another and ultimately develop friendships. So there was a place of community. Additionally, it was a place of celebration, right? A couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, they were experiencing a famine. And so now they're celebrating the fact that, hey man, there's food and we have food for a long, long time. And so there's, there's moments of celebration that would occur on the threshing floor. 
but it was dangerous because at the same time that all of this was happening, it was also known for a place of prostitution. And so <clears throat> that's why Naomi tells her, keep hidden. Don't let anybody else see you. Otherwise, they're going to think something else. So Naomi's looking out for Ruth as she tells her that. that her to be hidden in plain sight isn't just random, right? Like they're, Naomi's devising this plan up like at five, six, seven in the evening. Ruth executes it at midnight. And so she's looking out for her, All right? Already in, in chapter two, when we begin to see uh, Naomi's change of heart, we begin to see her look out for Ruth. One of the things that Ruth told her at the end of chapter two was, hey, I've been, I've been working uh, at Boaz's field. And Naomi tells her, it's really good that you were at Boaz's field. Anywhere else and you would have been assaulted. So she's been looking out for her. Here she's doing the same thing. It is a risky plan, but she is nevertheless looking out for Ruth, right? So that's what's going on. In addition to that, briefly putting her plan on the shelf, I want you to also notice Naomi's revival. We touched on this a little bit last week. Remember, in chapter one, as it comes to a close, we see Naomi say that I left full and I've come back empty. The Almighty has dealt with me uh, bitterly, so don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. She's bitter. At the start of chapter two, Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go get us some food. And Naomi doesn't even consider her well-being. says, yeah, go. And at the end of chapter two, we start to see this shift in Naomi's heart where she realizes that God has not forsaken her. And we see her heart begin to go from bitterness back to gratitude. And now here we come to chapter three and we see that she is uh, intimately involved in the life of Ruth. We see Naomi follow through with protection in the midst of this plan. We see Naomi now all of a sudden care for Ruth because if you think about the prayer from chapter one, she's saying, man, I prayed that for you and told you to go back to Moab. Now you belong, the, belong to the Lord and this prayer is now gonna be answered through me following up with you and caring for you and loving you. Additionally, uh, Naomi now has a great deal of hope because Naomi thinks Ruth has a shot with Boaz. And if she has a shot with Boaz, that may mean marriage. And if they go to marriage, that means we might be redeemed. And if we might be redeemed, then that means uh, Ruth and Boaz may have a child. And if they have a child, that means that the family line is protected. So she's thinking all sorts of things as she is involved in the life of Ruth. It's a crazy transformation from chapter one. But nevertheless, let's continue. And we close this part with Ruth's humility. And I think it's best represented in, in verse five, excuse me. Naomi gives her the plan, step by step. This is what you're gonna do. This is how you're gonna do it. This is when you're gonna go. And what does Ruth say in response? All that you say, I will do. One of the largest themes in this story has been Ruth's affection for Naomi. See, in God saving Ruth, she counted the cost and fully embraced the beauty of God, the people of God, and that included Naomi. 
that in spite of her being bitter and distant, Ruth loved her and provided for her. That's chapter two. Ruth committed herself to Naomi. That's chapter one. And here we see at the start of chapter three, Ruth's submission to Naomi is with great humility. Ruth's humility demonstrates her character and her integrity. See, character, remember we talked about this? Who you are and what you can be counted on to do. We have seen Ruth commit herself to Naomi, love Naomi, provide for Naomi, and here we see her submit to Naomi. She trusts her. She loves her. So let me ask you, is the fruit of humility present in your life? I dare you to ask your brothers and sisters, is the fruit of humility present in your life? Now, I want us to take, take a minute to consider that seriously. How often do we joke about our pride? Yeah, you know, it is something I need to work on, and man, that's just who I am, and how often do we, it sounds weird, genuinely joke about our pride? How often do you dismiss your pride? Yeah, I know, it's something I need to work on, it's something I need to do. How often do you dismiss it? Once more, let us consider this seriously. Is the fruit, and it's a fruit of the Spirit, is the fruit of humility present in your life? If we're looking at Ruth, let me add to it. Is the fruit of humility present in your life in spite of your circumstances? I dare you, I dare you to ask your brothers and sisters. See what they have to say. Ruth's humility comes out of a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. That's why it, it shines through this story. Her heart has been transformed by the grace of God. And so her walking in humility is a result of what God has done for her. In chapter one, we saw a saving faith. In chapter two, we saw an active faith. And here in chapter three, we're looking at a humble faith. If you desire to pursue humility, keep your eyes on Jesus. Moving along, we come to the proposal. This is verses 6 through 13. Here we see Ruth carrying out Naomi's plan. She kind of pulls an audible, but we'll talk about that in a minute. We see Ruth carrying out Naomi's plan like a special forces soldier in love. Or hoping to get some clarity. In verse 7, we read that Boaz had his dinner. Maybe he enjoyed some wine. And his heart was Mary uh, laying on a heap of grain. Now, this is, this is extra biblical. It's not like a commentator said this. At least I don't think so. Right? I think, personally, that's a beautiful picture. <laughs> right? The reason why I think that, and actually one commentator makes a note on this, is because it's not that he wasn't, uh, it's not that he was being irresponsible. 
But it's that Boaz was simply enjoying what God had done. Think about it. They just came out of a famine. There's food. There's provision. Yeah, he had his dinner. Fine, he had his glass of wine. And he's just laying down, looking up. Perhaps he's praising the Lord for what he's done. A couple of months ago, there wasn't any of this. We don't see him get drunk. We don't see him do any of this irresponsibly. Perhaps he's just giving thanks, and eventually, homeboy falls asleep. Now, here is where we encounter Ruth's initiative. I dig it. Here we go. I want you to notice in verse 8. Let's go to verse 8 real quick. At midnight, so see, it's executed at midnight. At midnight, the man was startled. So he's already falling asleep. Ruth has uncovered his feet. She's laying at his feet. The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Right? In addition to that, in verse 7 and 8, we see that Ruth comes in softly. That's a really great word. She's quiet. She's not making a lot of noise. Right? She's not like stumbling over stuff. She comes in softly. She's executing the plan that Naomi put together. She uncovers his feet right? And she lays, and then we see that homeboy freaks out, as he probably should, right? He freaks out, and he doesn't immediately recognize her, right? He says, who are you? And here's what I I want. We're going to park here. We're going to park on her response, right? He said, who are you? This is verse 9, and she answered, check it. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In verse 9, Ruth, we're going we're to look at it a little bit more in detail, but in verse 9, Ruth is essentially proposing to Boaz. She, by uncovering her feet and laying down at his feet, what she is suggesting symbolically is that she will come willingly into submission under his authority and leadership. When we looked at Colossians in the spring, I think it was chapter three, where Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, right? That word submit, we looked at that, and the idea or the meaning behind that was a willingness, a willingness to come under the authority and leadership of the husband. Here, by Ruth uncovering his feet, laying at his feet, she's saying, I am willing to come under your authority and your leadership. She goes on to say, spread your wings over your servant. Similar language is used, if you want to write this down, is used in Ezekiel 16.8. The idea behind that is God making a marriage covenant with his people. So when she says, spread your wings over your servant, it's not just his provision as a spiritual leader. It is, hey, I I want to get married. I want to enter into a covenant with you. So there's the proposal. Next up, she says this twice. She refers to herself as his or your servant. Check that. Her status has changed. Rewind to chapter two. In chapter two, as he shows her favor, right? As, she, as he shows her favor, she goes to him in gratitude and thanksgiving and humility, and she ends up telling him, I don't know why you've shown me so much favor. I'm not even one of your servants. Here we are in chapter three, and she's saying, I'm your servant. 
her status has changed. Ultimately, she's saying, I think I'm someone you could marry. She calls him a redeemer, recognizing that he could redeem her, her family, the land. That wasn't part of the plan, <laughs> right? What was it that Naomi said? Uncover his feet, and then he'll tell you what to do. And she's like, wow. Right? <laughs> she, she proposes to him. And you've got to wonder, like, well, why? Why did she propose to him? Or why even devise this kind of a plan? The truth is we don't know. There's really not a lot of detail that is provided for us. But we do know that at this point, it looks like it's the end of the barley harvest. Last week when we were talking about the barley harvest, I told you that it lasts about seven to nine weeks. And so from chapter two to chapter three, maybe there's been about two and a half, three months that have gone by and Boaz hasn't made a move. So she did. You know what I'm saying? So her initiative comes with a great risk, but it is executed with tremendous humility. So I'm going to pause here. Okay? Told you, we're going to ride the wave of suspense, but then dive back into the story. But let me pause here for a minute. I want to give, I guess, some, some counsel. That's a better word, better word for it. Let me give some counsel for everybody, but particularly the ladies. I wasn't looking at you, Kenneth. Okay? But particularly the ladies. Here's what I love. Here's what I've always loved about this scene. Right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow my wife up in a bit. <clears throat> Here's what I've always loved about this scene. As she goes to Boaz, right? he's like, who are you? She tells him who he is, and then she just puts it all on the table. Do you want to get married? Right? She says it a lot more eloquently, right? Like, spread your wings over me. Right? But we're, we're just brief commentary. I love that she puts the ball in his court. She puts the ball in his court. She's like, hey, make a decision. And we're going to see his response in a minute. We're, we, haven't, we just haven't gotten there. It's verse 10. I love that. There's no time that's being wasted. There's no notes that are being passed in back and forth. There's no sub-messaging. Right? There's no this, well, I think this, that, and yet there's, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Are you? Now, I say that specifically to my sisters, because I, I don't know what else to call it other than cornering dudes. And I find it awesome when women corner dudes, because you will see, right? You will see if they actually do something. You will see, right? So my wife and I are dating. I'm on the phone with her. This is shortly after I got back from Corpus, that same story that I was telling you about earlier. She's still in Tennessee. She's hanging out with her cousins. I'm talking to her telling her about my trip to Corpus and all the stuff with the city. And then Rebecca cuts me off and says, where is this going? I'm a single mom. I need to know what's up. Are you in or are you out? I want marriage. Do you? And, 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 that, in, that, and in that moment, in that moment, it forced me to, I got to have an answer. Because here's the thing, here's the thing, what I've seen with dudes, when that kind of comes up, like, hey, what's up, this is what I want, you see dudes are like, well, you know, I've been praying, like, nada que ver, bro, you don't have an answer. 
So I don't, I actually don't know if it's good counsel. I mean, some ladies might say like, no, man, the man's got to be the one that makes the first move. And I would agree. But I think cornering dudes is excellent. It forces them to come up with an answer right then and there. And based on that answer, you'll know their character. You'll know their heart. You know what they're about. You know whether they're in or they're not. You're going to see it in verse 10. So I'm not like I'm just making this up. You're going to see it in verse 10. Again, this is extra biblical. It's not like I'm drawing this from the commentary, right? It's advice from my sisters. So if you are in a relationship and you're not married and you are dating, I guess, and I was trying to think of a nice word, and if you're dating and he's like, walking on eggshells, not really sure what's going on. It's been a while. You've been on all these dates. All the text messaging and sub-messaging crap is happening, but nothing is happening at the same time. Say something. Just corner him. If he responds, great. If he doesn't, now you have your answer. Why are you wasting your time? Now, with that being said, that's advice for my sisters, but that's also advice for everyone. Especially if you're married. And corner him. He's going to have an answer. And no answer is an answer. Moving on. Moving on. That was it. That's extra biblical commentary. Not like I've read anymore. Let's get back into the story. So her initiative comes with a great risk. It's executed with great humility. And what we see is Boaz respond with incredible integrity. Let's go to verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Right? That means she's younger than him. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. His, his, his response takes up the rest of this section, so we'll, we'll go slow. Okay? Because her approach comes with great risk, I want you to really look at Boaz's response. The truth is, this could have gone sideways a long time ago. When, when he was startled, he could have had her arrested. When he was startled, he or she could have made a lot of noise because she freaked out. Other people would have seen that she was there. It would have tainted her reputation. She could have been taken advantage, uh, taken advantage of. So many things could have gone wrong. But rather, Boaz's response is filled with integrity. Instead of doing any of those things, he blesses her. He blesses her and demonstrates that he is a man of integrity by handling the situation delicately. If character is who you are and what you can be counted on to do, then integrity is who you are when no one is looking. It's who you are when no one is looking. He uses this word kindness. And I've mentioned this a few times. The word kindness here refers to this, this Hebraic word called hased. And hased was described to be God's covenantal love for his people. God's ongoing pursuit of his people. And that's what he's talking about. You pursued me. And he goes on to say that she has not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Meaning, not only was Ruth attractive, but she hadn't been talking to others. She wasn't like sub-messaging anyone else. She wasn't like trying to see what her options were. She has built a solid reputation in the community. This is affirmed by the following verse. 
He goes on to say, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He recognizes her character and recognizes her reputation, even showing everyone in the community knows that she's a woman of character. And in that same response, let me go back to it. Notice what he says. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Homeboy does not waste time. She corners him. He gives her an answer, and he starts moving. He doesn't shy away. I got to pray about it. I got to go get some counsel. Let's see what my community group says. You know what I mean? I got I to gotta check the daily proverb of the day, right? He doesn't say any of that. Boaz doesn't, Boaz doesn't waste any time. He doesn't shy away from giving her an answer. Instead, he provides her with an answer, provides her with a promise, and moves on it. Like right then and there. Additionally, Boaz is an honorable man. So we've seen his character in chapter two. Here we're seeing his integrity. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a bit. We're looking at his integrity, but now we're also seeing that he is an honorable man. Verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, here's the tension that we talked about last week. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. That's the tension. The tension is he's not the only redeemer in the family, right? The tension is that there is another relative that's closer to Naomi than Boaz is. And we see him honor their social customs. He doesn't be like, hey man, I'm gonna just take all, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take over. He honors their social customs. He says, if this dude's willing to redeem you, good. If he's not, I'll take care of it. What's what's so great, what's so beautiful, what's, I don't know. Yeah, what's so beautiful about this is that Boaz vows to redeem all of Ruth. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But wrapping this section up, in a plan that could have had devastating consequences. The providence of God is displayed beautifully in the humility of Ruth and in the integrity of Boaz as he handles a delicate situation, one that could have been very dangerous for them. He handles it well. So, so, so more than a risky plan, I want you to take notice of Boaz's integrity So the question now is, are you a person of integrity? Are you a person of integrity? It's who you are when no one else is around. The integrity of Boaz demonstrates a love for God and a love for the people of God, especially when no one else is around. And finally, the promise of provision. This is verses 14 to 18. So it was a crazy night in that the plan worked. And now the morning is here. And just like the mercy of God is new every morning, so is the grace that he pours out onto us. 
I want you to notice first how Boaz protects Ruth. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he protects her by them waking up early before anyone else could see, before anyone else could still recognize her or him. He does this so that he would continually protect the reputation that she has built. See, Boaz wasn't only focused on protecting her when other people were around. Remember in chapter two, he tells his servants, hey, nobody bother her. Nobody rebuke her. And if any of you touch her, you're going to deal with me. And then he said it again at the end of chapter two. And then she affirmed that to Naomi in chapter two. And Naomi says, stay near. I'm glad that you're in his field. Stay near. In other words, Boaz wasn't just trying to show off how much of a protector he was when there were other people around. There's no one around, and he is protecting her character. He is protecting her reputation. That is integrity. That's a a beautiful demonstration of integrity. Once more, I said that integrity is who you are when no one is around. The root word or the root meaning of the word integrity is one. That you are one way across the board. When the Titanic was built, what separated the Titanic from other large vessels was the design of its hull. And if you've ever seen the movie or if you've ever done any kind of work on the Titanic, you will have seen that the hull was compartmentalized. There were several sections that had these massive walls, and the idea was that if there was an accident or something like an iceberg, that water would spill over into this one section of the hull, but it would not spill over into the other sections of the hull, allowing the vessel to continue making her voyage. What happened to the Titanic? Iceberg hits, water starts coming in, it starts filling up, and then what happens? Spills over into the next section. Fills up, spills over into the next section and the next, and you know the rest of the story. The idea behind the illustration of the Titanic is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat. What they tried to do was compartmentalize the issue, and it spilled over anyway. When it comes to integrity, too many of you try to compartmentalize your life. You're one way on Sunday. You're one way at missional community. You're one way at prayer at lunch. You're one way at your work. You're one way with non-Christians. You compartmentalize just like they tried compartmentalizing the Titanic. But the problem is that particularly when we are in pursuit of our sin or when we're in our sin, it fills up that section and it spills over to the next. Fills that up spills over into the next. Boaz demonstrates that not only is he an honorable man, not only is he a man of godly character, he is a man of integrity. So when he protects Ruth in chapter 2, he's not just doing that to impress his homies. He's doing that because that's who he is. He treats her with dignity, respect, honor, In addition to that, here we have in chapter 3, as she is leaving, he continues to do it when no one's around. He is one 
across the board. He's a man of integrity. So it comes back to the question, are you a person of integrity? Nevertheless, let's continue. So Boaz protects Ruth, and then here we see Boaz carrying out his promise of provision and redemption. So he tells her, let's actually go to the text. He tells her, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out, excuse me, six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city and when she, she went back to Naomi. Okay, here it is, right? We see in this move, this move that Boaz made, we see him beginning to carry out his promise of provision and redemption. The garment, right? The garment that she has, the cloak, the Star Wars cloak, right? She opens it up. He's like, come over, spread it out. So she does. He hooks her up with six measures of barley. Last week or two weeks ago, when we were in chapter two at the beginning, we saw that she was able to harvest for herself uh, an ephah, which is about 30 pounds of barley, and she carried it in by herself back into the city with Naomi. Here, he hooks her up with anywhere between 60 to 90 pounds of barley. And she's just gonna like power clean that sucker on her back and, 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 and walk back into the city, right? Now, part of that could be uh, part of that could be that if anybody did question Ruth, she could say, I just came to get some barley. Like, so she's protected, right? But in addition to that, the grain is a symbol for more than her just having an answer if anyone asks why she's there. And so here's what Boaz does and how, once again, he points us to the person and work of Jesus. Boaz meets Ruth and Naomi's biggest need. He meets a physical need. He hooks her up with 60 to 90 pounds of, of barley. It's not just so that she would have an answer. At this point, Ruth and Naomi are still poor. They're still hungry. The harvest is over. At some point, food's going to run out until the next harvest comes. He's hooking her up by meeting their biggest need. And he goes above and beyond, making sure that they have plenty of food. So he meets a physical need. Jesus meets our deepest need. See, outside of him, we are depraved and enslaved to our sin. And there is a need for a Savior to redeem us. And Jesus enters into human history to redeem us. He meets our deepest need, freedom from enslavement to sin. He gives us a new heart, one that was made of stone, now flesh. Jesus meets our deepest need. Number two, Boaz redeems the entire family. He says to, to Ruth, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Once more, rewind to chapter one. What did Ruth say at the end of chapter one? I went away full and now I am empty. The 60 to 90 pounds of grain isn't just meeting their needs. It's Boaz saying, I will take care of your entire family. He's going to redeem the entire family. It would be similar to one of the things that my wife told me when we're headed toward marriage. My, my wife said, uh, she said, 
Seth and I are a total package. It is almost as if Boaz is telling Naomi, you and your mother-in-law, I'm, I, it's a total package. I will redeem all of you. The entire family. He takes responsibility for the entire family, the land, everything. He changes their status. Jesus redeems our entirety. When Jesus redeems us, our status is now changed. No longer are we slaves to sin, but redeemed children of God. That we go from being orphans to sons and daughters. Our status is changed. Number three, Boaz moves urgently. I want you to notice Naomi's response as Ruth comes back to her and tells her how the plan went. She says, the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz doesn't waste any time. Boaz moves urgently. Boaz has a plan. He knows who he's going to talk to. His focus is on the Lord as he pursues Ruth. Jesus moves relentlessly, or I should say it this way, Jesus saves relentlessly upon us crying out and recognizing our depravity that we are sinners. There is no time wasted in God making us his own. And the proof of that is that the Holy Spirit resides in the Christian. He doesn't say, we'll see how you do, and then I'll hook you up with the Holy Spirit. That upon crying out and us being reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son, we are gifted the Holy Spirit right then and there. The promise of provision, when we look to Boaz once more, is that needs are met, family is taken care of, and no time is wasted. The promise of provision, when we look through Boaz, is that Jesus, our Redeemer, fulfills our deepest need. All of chapter 3, all of this beautifully culminates to us, the redeemed, those who belong to God and Christ, where because of what Jesus has done, it ought to produce humility. That's our character. It ought to produce humility. It ought to produce worship. That's our integrity. That worship isn't just summed up to Sunday morning. This is where we gather to hear the preached word, to gather to sing praises to God and all that he has done for us in Christ. But that then bleeds out into the rest of the week as we become a people on mission. That when it comes to us being on mission, we are proclaiming and practicing the praise and beauty of God and what he has done for us. When we don't, there's a disconnect in character and integrity. You have been redeemed. And when you were redeemed, the quiet hand of God was moving all around you. Your deepest need has been met. Who you are is because of what Jesus has done for you. Boaz points us to a greater story and a greater person. And that's when God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, lived the life that we cannot live, 
die the death that we deserve for our sin in our place and freely offers us the grace of salvation that we cannot earn. So Christian, as you consider humility and integrity, does the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit come to mind? If it doesn't, perhaps your eyes are fixed upon yourself. Are you different when you're around different people? What does that reveal about your heart? You have been redeemed so that you would proclaim and practice a new life in Christ. So this morning, may the cry of your heart be what David says in Psalm 25, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Confess your sin before the Lord. Turn to Him, and He will meet you where you are with His grace. And if you're not a Christian, like Ruth was at the beginning of this story, she was the foreigner, she was estranged from God, she was alienated from God because of her sin. That's who you are now, estranged, alienated, and separated from God because of your sin. However, in Christ, he offers you a salvation that you cannot earn, a heart that can only be revived by the Holy Spirit himself. And Jesus is ready to pardon all who turn to him in faith and repentance. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and place your trust in Jesus. Church, in the providence of God, redemption in Christ promises the provision of our deepest need, and that is God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we confess, we confess that we are, we are sinners in need of your grace. And by your grace in Christ, you have forgiven our sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have given us power over our sin. God, we pray that your grace would bind our wandering hearts to you because we are prone to wander. Your redemptive grace is so absolutely amazing that a thank you is not enough, but it's what we have. Holy Spirit, guide us to be men and women of character and integrity because we belong to you, not so that we would belong to you. May our walk be rooted upon the beauty of Christ, our Redeemer. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you in your sight this morning. Amen.